2, going through the Old Testament, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Second Chronicles chapter 2. Let's begin in prayer. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we just uh, love you. We love opening up your word. We love the fact that it's just at our fingertips, Lord, where we can open up your word and our heart can be exposed to what you're trying to tell us. And, and Father, I just pray, you know, believing, we as a group pray and agree that you'll speak to us as, um, as a fellowship of believers this evening, Lord. And Father, we want to just reflect, ref- reflect the light of you, even as we Look into your face, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we began in Second Chronicles. And in verses uh, 15 and 14 and 15, it says that, And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in chariot cities, and with the king in Jerusalem. Also, the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowlands. So, tremendous prosperity in the reign of Solomon. As we talked about last week, who paid the price for this? David did. David was a man of war, and he, uh, through his courage, through his righteousness, through his pursuit of the Lord, and through just his leadership, uh, he sort of bore the stripes for what the generation after him would be able to basically uh, be blessed by, and so uh, David is a, a foreshadowing of Jesus who paid the price uh, so that we could uh, prosper as well. Prosper with joy and peace and uh, kindness and, and love in our hearts, not necessarily as uh, that our houses will, gold and silver be as common as, as stones, but... Um, uh, figuratively speaking, the Lord Jesus has done that for us. And so, Second Chronicles all about the temple, the temple, and it's important when you're reading about the temple to remember that the temple is really a foreshadowing, a foretaste of at least three things. One, it speaks of the body of Christ. His body. Jesus said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it. So it was a foreshadowing, a, a, a type of Christ, if you will. It pointed towards the Messiah. It also speaks of the body of an individual believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, it also speaks to the body of believers corporately. Ephesians 19, uh, rather Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, sort of a, a long uh, 
long series of verses here, but I'd like to read them because the temple speaks of, of also of, of a body of believers corporately being a temple. It says in Ephesians 2, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so the temple, when you're reading about the temple in Second Chronicles, sort of as the backdrop of that, always remember and keep in mind that the temple in the Old Testament, it speaks forward to one, the body of Christ, two, your body, the individual believer, and three, of the church corporately. And so it says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, Then Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. And so there it says he determined to build a name for the Lord and uh, a lot of ministry nowadays is done uh, for the name of a man. How wonderful it is when a body of believers is... Uh, just joining together to build a house for the name of the Lord. You know, when you walk into a church and you see the name of a man with a senior pastor or whatever all over the place, you see his picture, you see him, you know, next to famous people or whatever, let that be a red flag that the ministry perhaps may be built for the name of a man, not the name of the Lord. However, we want to build uh, a house uh, for, the, uh, for the name of the Lord. And so that's what it says he determined to do. Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord. Verse 2, Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear burdens. 80,000 to quarry stone in the mountains and 3,600 to oversee them. So verse 2, 70,000 men to, to bear burdens. I mean, they're probably the ones carrying the stones uh, to and from the quarries uh, to, uh, to the place where they would be chiseled and that type of thing, and then on to Jerusalem. And, you know, I like to, to see myself as one of these 70,000. And he's chosen us, he's chosen you, he's chosen me to be used as his tool. You know, he, he could have used a rock, Jesus said in Luke, uh, to... The, um, when the chief priests were rebuking him because the multitude was saying, Hosanna, son of David, meaning they were calling him the Messiah, the chief priest rebuked him and says, don't you hear what these people are saying? Tell them to stop. He says, well, if, I, if they do stop, the, even the rocks will cry out. So God could have used a rock rather than you. 
Today's our self-esteem day. This morning it was paper cup. But uh, he could have used a, a rock rather than you. Uh, we are merely uh, instruments. We are, as we talked about this morning, clay pots, cracked up pots, jars of clay. Uh, I like that day vessels, uh, a container that's so cheap it will only last a day. And so um, we are... In the container itself is just dirt, it's insignificant, but God has chosen to make our life significant. So 70,000 to bear burdens. Um, think of these maybe as prayer warriors. You know, the Bible speaks to having that burden. God bless you when God just puts a burden on your heart for someone to pray for them. A burden on your heart. And, you know, we hear that in the, in the context of prayer a lot. It's, it's useful to really talk about what that means. A, a burden is when you feel the burden. You feel someone else's burden. They're going through some enormous trial, and, and you feel it. You, you, you feel weighted down. And, that, and, and that's you know, this expression of, I have a burden to, to pray for this person. It's, you feel some kind of weight, some kind of fear on their life. Uh, uh, and, and so think of the 70,000 here who are bearing burdens. Think of them as uh, prayer warriors. Oh, how we need people to intercede for this city, for this region. Burden barriers. And then it says 80,000 of them, uh, verse 2, uh, were to quarry stone or to cut stone. And, and so this speaks of the... Uh, of really of uh, sort of discipling. Uh, these are the ones who are tilling the soil and, and, and chipping away at, at, at people so they're discipled. And, you know, sometimes you, 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 you cut stones and, and uh, people don't like it when you're chipping away and discipling them. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, remember, you may remember from First Kings that all of this cutting of stone these people who were cutting stones, quarrying stones, was done outside of Jerusalem. Remember that verse? I don't know if you remember in 1 King. It says, while the temple was being built, you could not hear any hammering, any chiseling. It was basically silent. You know, we spent this past year with a house being built next to us, and it was pretty brutal. I mean, you know, from 7 in the morning to six at night, just all day long, you know, doing stuff like whatever, chiseling wood or cutting wood and, and, and things like that. And actually, they were cutting some stones, too, because the siding is sort of a, a concrete type of siding. But incredible that, that it was all it, it, the temple, this mighty, mighty structure, all the stones were fitted outside of Jerusalem. And they were carried in, and they were placed. Just they were they were uh, sort of chiseled perfectly and put into place. As we'll see later, they had to bring in people from outside of Israel who knew how to do that. The Phoenicians they were expert at this type of thing. But you know, this speaks to the fact that when Jesus uh, comes back for His church, uh, all the chipping uh, will be done. In other words, right now, you know, we're being chipped, we're being pounded on, we're being carved, we're being quarried. 
Any other adjectives you guys should want to, want to use for this past week? Hard press, struck down, you know, and, and that's what that's what you know Jesus is chiseling us. But when He comes back for His church, and said, and you know, we are returned to heaven. There's not going to be any more sounds of hammers up there. We're going to fit perfectly as living stones, uh, and. We will, you know, rejoice because all the chiseling, all this pain will be done. You know, the world is just one big rock quarry and, and God is chiseling away at us right now. That Think of 1 Peter 2.5. It says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so I love those. Um, I love those verses uh, about the uh, the rapture. It says in First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verse uh, sixteen: For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's a comforting thing knowing that the Lord is coming for us. He's coming for us and all the chiseling will be done. All the quarrying. And so anyway, back in 2 Chronicles, verse 3, it says, Then Solomon sent to Hiram, king of Tyre, saying, As you have dealt with David my father and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. So David and Hiram of Tyre, that was slightly to the north of where Israel was, Tyre was famous for uh, their skilled laborers, but also just for their material, their cedar, uh, and that type of thing. And so he's writing to Hiram, saying, look, I need your help, uh, just as you helped my father David. I need your help too. Behold, I am building, verse 4, a temple for the name of the Lord my God, to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense, for the continual showbread, for the burnt offerings, uh, morning and evening, on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, and on the set feasts of the, of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. And so, it's interesting there. I have been asked before, why does it say this is an ordinance forever to Israel if, in fact, Jesus has fulfilled all these things and... You know, they're not happening anymore. You don't have sacrifices of lambs and, and, and goats and stuff in the temple. Actually, there is no temple. And so why is this an ordinance forever? Well, some, some people think that that temple that is described in the book of Ezekiel is the temple that will be there in Jerusalem in the millennial reign, and they actually will have sacrifices again. 
They'll have sacrifices again of, of lambs and goats and rams in the millennial reign. And you say, well, you mean there's going to be sacrifices? How could that be? Jesus was our sacrifice. They were just a foreshadowing of him. Well, some believe that these sacrifices will be a reminder, a reminder in the temple of, of Jesus' uh, sacrifice. I don't know the answer to, to that question. I do know here it does say this is an ordinance forever to Israel. I prefer to interpret this to mean that when Jesus uh, was sacrificed, he fulfilled all these things, the Sabbath, the new moons, the set feasts, and that so in a very real sense, the, this ordinance here, this command to have these things continually forever has been met in his life and will be continue to be met for eternity, he, him having fulfilled it. And as for the temple in Ezekiel, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, some believe it's a temple that will be, it's a model of what is in heaven. Uh, others think it's a temple in the millennial reign, but others think it's, it's, it, it'll be in the millennial reign and there will be sacrifices there. Uh, interesting, don't know. It's uh, interesting to think about, not the type of stuff we want to argue about, but uh, it's important, though, to come up with an answer for what you believe. And so when it says here, this is an ordinance forever, you need to consider, well, what does that mean? There's no sacrifices taking place anymore. So what could it mean? Anyway, verse 5, And the temple which I build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods, but who is able to build him a temple since heaven and earth, I mean, rather, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. So I'm reminded of Acts uh, chapter 7 and uh, verse 47 where Stephen right before he's about to be stoned to death and condemned to death, uh, says there in Acts 7.47, Solomon built, a, built God a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in the temples made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Remember when Stephen, he's sort of rebuking the Sanhedrin, uh, and he's saying uh, these things, and they have gotten to the place where they had uh, worshipped the temple rather than the treasure in the temple. Now, amazingly enough, we talked this morning all about uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where it says that we have this treasure treasure in earthen vessels. And the earthen vessel is what? It's a container made out of dirt. It's a paper cup. It's a, it's a jar of clay. And what, what, was, uh, what did we talk about this morning? Why did God do that? So there'd be no uh, distinction or, or, or no confusion, rather, at all as to what the treasure is and what the container is. It's really clear with us being just containers made out of dirt that if there's any fruit in our lives, it's God. It's not us. Now, the temple, though, was $10 billion they spent on the temple. If you add up um, all the gold and silver and brass that not only David himself offered up, but Solomon did, and then all the leaders of Israel, 
$10 billion. I suppose it's worth thinking, uh, you know, why did the Lord do that? I mean, if it's so clear in the New Testament that he wanted this clear distinction, he himself said it. He said he wanted his treasure in vessels of clay so that no... No one would glory in his presence, so it would be uh, obvious to everyone that the excellence of his power is of him and not of us. Uh, well, I don't uh, completely understand why he chose to, to build a temple where, where, a temple where this much money was spent, $10 billion. And by the way, very small this temple was. It was something like 45 feet by 30 feet by 90. Very small. That's not much bigger than the room we're in now. Maybe this room, this room's a little, obviously it's not as tall, but uh, it's not that big. But $10 billion, and we'll see later, they spent $650 on every single nail in this temple. I mean, that's some kind of building budget right there. I mean, a nail, uh, $650. But we learned, and so you ask the question, well, why would the Lord have ever done that, particularly of what we learned this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Uh, I, I don't completely understand why. I do know this, that over time, the Jews began to worship the temple rather than the treasure in it. And that was Stephen's whole point as they were about to, uh, to stone him. He just got up in their face and he, said, and he said to them, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Uh, you know, his, his Shekinah glory uh, may have a piece of his glory may have been in the most holy place there, but but it, he, you know, you guys have lost sight of what the treasure really is, and you become to to worship the temple rather than the treasure uh, in it. Uh, so so anyway, temple, a foreshadowing of his son, a foreshadowing of uh, a believer in Christ, a foreshadowing of the body of Christ. And it says there in verse 7, therefore, he's writing to Hiram. It says, therefore, send me at once a man skillful to work in gold and silver and bronze and iron and purple and crimson and blue. This was going to be one cool place. (laughs) Who has skill to engrave with the skillful men who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David, my father, provided. And so, again, Phoenicians were very skilled at artisans. And so, in, seven, in verse 7, he says, send me your best. He, he, he wants someone who is really good at what they do. And, you know, we shouldn't be extravagant in the body of Christ, but we do need to give God our best. Someone just told me they had gone to a church recently. They were on a trip, and they were on a church recently. And, and, you know, they went in there, and there were crazy things like leaves in the hallway, and the bathrooms were all ratty, and there were kids' toys strewn around the sanctuary. I mean, craziness. And uh, while it's true we can get fixated on sort of the detail and we forget that the most imp- we lose the most important thing, which is worshiping God. We also remember that God deserves our excellence. He deserves, just like we learned on Sunday nights about David and his worshipers, he, he, he demanded excellence from his musicians and the people who were worshiping in the temple. So he, uh, while we, we shouldn't be extravagant, uh, we do need to 
uh, offer God what is excellent. And so then Hiram, king of Tyre, verse 11, answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon. He said, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. And so some people think, well, maybe that's just flattery by a pagan king. Maybe it was actually Spurgeon uh, sees in this a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ. Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. I tell you, I, can, I, I hear what, what Spurgeon's saying there. The Lord loves us, and he couldn't have given us a better king and Jesus Christ. And then he uh, goes on to, uh, Hiram goes on to say that, um, verse 13, and now I have sent a skillful man endowed with understanding, Hiram, my master craftsman. And so he sends uh, this important uh, craftsman uh, to him. Verse 14, it says he's the son of a, a woman of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre. So what does that mean? That means he's half Jewish and he's half uh, Phoenician. So he's just sort of half Israelite. And we made the point when we were in 1 Kings that it's interesting that when the tabernacle was made, remember in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, the tabernacle is what preceded the temple. And, the ta- and, and Moses, God gave Moses the, the law for, to build the tabernacle. He's a Jewish, two Jewish men were in charge of, of that. Of course, they were full-blooded Israelites, and it said they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just want to, I think it bears repeating. We're going to go on to see it with the temple this incredible, wonderful detail and ornate and just pomegranates and cherubim and all, you know, incredibly beautiful, ornate temple. It's interesting, someone who was apparently not even a believer is brought in from the outside to make it, but the tabernacle, which, by the way, God himself gave all the, you know, the specific directions to these men full of the Holy Spirit, was very, very simple. In fact, they weren't even allowed to put a chisel to a stone with a tabernacle. And so God knows our hearts. So he knows that eventually we start, worship, we start, start worshiping buildings. We start worshiping things. So the tabernacle was built by men who were, it says in Exodus, filled with the Holy Spirit. It was very, very simple. Frankly, it was more like an earthen vessel. So you, you wouldn't mistake the creator with the creation. The temple, unfortunately, eventually turns into something else where people start uh, worshiping uh, the temple. Anyway, verse 17 says, Then Solomon numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census in which David his father had numbered them, and they were found to be 153,600, and he made 70,000 of them uh, bearers of burdens, 80,000 stonecutters in the mountains, and 3,600 overseers to make the people work. So interesting that um, the people who made the temple were not even Israelites. They were from outside the uh, Israel. And this speaks to me just of 
what wound up happening in the just with the whole body of Christ. Jesus uh, came and he said that his ministry was to the lost children, lost sheep of Israel. But then he told many parables about how the parable of the wedding feast, where it was very clear that when Israel rejected God, that God was just going to go out and ask anyone who wanted to come to the wedding feast, meaning you, me. This goes the self-esteem thing again. You, me, just anyone. As he said in the parable of the wedding feast, go out and just try, just drag them in here, anyone who's willing to come, because his children refused. Uh, and so in the entrance, was, entrance, the cost of entrance was what? Just the robes of righteousness, the wedding garments. I love that parable. Uh, and, and so this is a foreshadowing of that, of, of you, me, and, and, and other uh, Gentiles who were called upon to continue on the work of the Lord. Now, in Romans 9-11, through 11, you will read that after the fullness of the Gentiles, after the time of the fullness of the Gentiles has come, meaning after the last Gentile who was appointed to God for salvation has been saved, Israel's going to come back on the scene big time in sort of the God's whole economy and order of things. And of course, we're already seeing Israel uh, being reestablished, but actually uh, there will come a time where they have an even much greater uh, role, really a, a, a more central role in, in things that are happening. And in and, 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 and Romans chapter 10, 11, it talks about a huge influx of, of saved uh, Jews. Uh, will There will be a tremendous... A harvest of, of Jewish people uh, who give their lives to the Messiah. Okay, chapter 3. Now, this is important. Chapter 2, verse 1 began saying Solomon determined to build a temple. Chapter 3, verse 1 says he began to build the house of the Lord. So how many times have Christians at a campfire somewhere, or at a conference, or wherever. Uh, they determined to do something. But man, they came down the mountain, and by the time they were in the valley, the determination, it was like a carcass by the wayside. Solomon determined, but then it says he began. It's important that if we've determined to do so, in other words, we've been called by, by the Lord to do something, we also just need to begin it. So if the Lord has told you you need to be a teacher of his word, you need to go out there and begin. If he's told you you need to be an evangelist, you need to begin. If you've stopped, you need to go back. If he's told you you're going to be a missionary... You need to go in that direction. If he's told you you're going to serve at, you know, at Calvary Kids, please step up to the plate and do it. Actually, I had a wonderful time last. They had a wonderful time last Friday. There was ten kids there. Just a blessing. Just teach them the Word of God. Please pray for that ministry. But I hope and pray that we not only determine, obviously. But by faith we begin. It says, verse one it says he began to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount on Mount Moriah. Wow, a 
I don't know about you, but just when I read that, that's like a heavy thing. <laughs> Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of the Ornan, the Jebusite. No ordinary place, this Mount Moriah. To this very day, it is the place of just uh, incredible uh, uh, conflict and desire and passion. Uh, it, and, and, you know, the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, this is the place where Abraham went to offer his son Isaac, the place of sacrifice. It is the place where David paid the full price for the threshing uh, floor, remember that? And he, he offered that sacrifice to stop the plague. There's 70,000 Israelites who had been killed or destroyed by a plague because of David's sin, his pride, taking the census. And that this is the very place where, the same place where Abraham offered Isaac. David also paid the full price. But, uh, of course, the most significant thing that ever happened there on Mount Moriah, where it peaked, not on the Temple Mount, but where it actually peaked, the place Golgotha, the place of the skulls, where the full price for your sin and mine was made. It's a really heavy place, this Mount Moriah. It's the place of beginning. It's the place of sacrifice. Listen, any work, anything that you ever do for the Lord involves serious sacrifice. Your time, your work, your money, your job, your advancement, whatever. You know, they, 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 the sacrifice that was done in order to get this temple built, 70,000 bears of burdens, wow. 80,000 stone cutters, wow. Amazing sacrifice. And, and uh, of course, the most wonderful sacrifice is not the sacrifice of an animal. The Bible says it's, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is a form of sacrifice. And so anyway, it goes on and says, and, and he began, verse 2, to build on the second day of the second month and the fourth reign, or fourth year of his reign. Anyone know the significance of that? The second day, the second month, and the fourth year of his reign? I don't, but if you do, just... Let me know after the service. Sorry about that. Anyway, just hope, just wanting, make sure you're paying attention here. Verse 3, this is the foundation which Solomon laid for the building, the house of God. The length was 60 cubits and the width 20 cubits. So a cubit is a foot and a half. So we know from 1 Kings 6.2 that the structure was 45 feet high, not that high. It's about four stories high, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide. It's exactly twice as big as the tabernacle. This is a small structure, a small structure. And so, um, but again, Solomon poured $10 billion into it. And so anyway, the temple here, it was divided into three main sections, three main sections, Patterned again after the tabernacle. 
The outer area was the courtyard. Everyone could see. Inside the temple, there was the holy place. That's where the altar of incense was. The table of the showbread was. And then the most holy place, the third main area, was where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Shekinah glory, the Kabod, the glory of God. He chose to actually have a visible presence that really only one person uh, saw. That was the high priest who himself was a type of Christ. Jesus is our high priest. He went in one day a year on the Day of Atonement, and that only after making uh, a number, having to go through a number of baptisms, water baptisms, all kinds of animal sacrifices. And, you know, why was that? Because, you know, man can't just run into the presence of God, the holiness of God, without his sin being covered. And it's the one of the most wonderful things about reading through the book of Numbers and in the Old Testament is a couple times, you know, you see these people say, hey, you know, let's uh, just offer up some incense to the Lord in front of his altar. And you see what happened. You see people being consumed by fire. And that represents what we should, the penalty we should suffer because of our own sin. You know, apart from Christ, there is no plan or whatever for a man or woman just to go into the presence of God. You know, New Agers will say, we'll go out to some mountain in California and go meet God on the top of a mountain or go light a candle in a temple somewhere. Uh, nothing like that. There's the, the, you go into the actual presence of, of God and you're torched, you're toast. You know, the high priest, again, had to go through many baptisms and had to make many sacrifices, you know, atoning for, for, for the sin, uh, his own sin. Of course, he, the high priest, was a, a, a type of Christ to come. Jesus is our high, uh, high priest, and, and Jesus goes into the presence of the Lord, and he's always interceding on our behalf, the Bible says, but uh, only once a year, so that most holy place, and there was a visible uh, manifestation of the Lord there. And so, um, remember, when we were speaking about the temple, uh, we are um, always remember those three things, the body of Christ, your own body as a believer, and the body of believers corporately. So you as an individual, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of God. You are yourself, in a sense, a fulfillment of this very temple in Second Chronicles chapter 3. It says, it, you know, some say, some also see, just as this temple had three parts, some also see three parts in, in, in you. you. Your body uh, is sort of the outer court, the vessel, the jar of clay, uh, but also your soul is it, your mind and emotions. That's the most holy place. And then your spirit is that which uh, no one can see, you know, in the outer court. Basically, anyone can see those people, uh, but your spirit only, uh, th that is only really, it's reserved for God himself and for the high priest, Jesus Christ. And so it is true that if you want to be a whole person, a productive, spiritual, fruitful uh, man or woman of God, you have to give attendance to all three of those things. 
and at the risk of sounding kind of new agey myself, it is absolutely totally biblical. You need to take care of your body, you need to take care of your soul, your mind and emotions, and you need to take care of your spirit. If I'm letting my body run down, you know, I'm just whatever, sucking down 20 uh, uh, Cokes a day, Coca-Colas or uh, uh, Red Bulls or whatever. You probably die if you do that. But um, uh, and you're just uh, you know wafing down pizza and shakes and and you never get any uh, uh, you know exercise ever. Well, let me tell you. You know, your body starts wasting away, so will your mind and emotions. You'll become emotional wreck, and your spirit will suffer too. It's just true. You need to, we do need to be taking care of our bodies. We're a steward of our, of our own bodies. We also need to be, we need to be taking care of our, uh, the second part of our temple, which is the mind and emotions. We can't, if we sit in front of the you know, TV all day or we just sort of never do anything to keep our mind active, you can be sure you'll be going into sin and the rest of your, your, your life, your spirit and your body will become affected. Will become affected. And of course, most importantly, your spirit you need to nurture and tend to your spirit, your most holy place where Jesus dwells in us. He dwells in these paper cups and, the, uh, and we need to tend to that. You, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So um, there's some good advice. One is to do all of them at the same time. You know, I get this, uh, I get this, treadmill up in my office upstairs, and I just blast a sermon, uh, which my kids are, have some significant issues with that, uh, blasting sermons while I'm trying to run on that thing, and, uh, and just, you know, and, and trying to worship at the same time, trying to worship at the same time, or whatever, you know, uh, Play Toby Mac or whoever it is you listen to as you uh, you're on your treadmill, uh, but you know do them all at the same time. It's 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 uh, uh, some good advice that we could uh, could we could take, but you know it is possible just to, to stay in the outer court where the burnt offerings are offered out there and you're sort of enjoying the fact that you're saved. You're saved and. Uh, you know, but I, one of the most influential books, probably the most influential book in my life other than the Bible, a little book by Andrew Murray, Abide in Christ. And remember the way he begins his little book. It's a 30-day devotional. It says, you know, how long are you going to sit in the outer court at the, uh, at the palace door when you could go right inside and dwell with, <laughs> dwell with the king, be right there in the most holy place? And so um, there is a time where you need to uh, go from the outer court into the holy place. And by the way, where was the holy place? That's the place where all the, the Levites, the priests, served. So leaving the place where all you do is sort of sit outside and enjoy the warmth of the body of Christ, there is a time to go in and start serving 
to that the holy place and serving the Lord, being an ear or an eye or a, a leg or a toe or a, a sermon I did on that pituitary gland. If you want to know what I'm talking about there, go listen to the CD. That's a long one. But anyway, if you're a pituitary gland, you know, go do the pituitary gland thing. <laughs> Sorry, man, I shouldn't have said that. That's like, I hope that didn't freak you out. But, but anyway, um, but then there's the most holy place, you know, going right through from the holy place where you serve. It's, it's becoming a Mary, right? not a Martha, but a Mary, becoming a worshiper. Becoming a place where you recognize, just like the high priest could see the visible uh, presence of the Lord, you, you, you learn to recognize and be in the presence of God, in the most holy place. And so the different places in the temple, verse 4, the vestibule was in front of the sanctuary, was 20 cubits long uh, across the width of the house, and the height was 120. So there was a part of the temple that was even higher than 90 feet. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. Verse 5, the large room he paneled with cypress, which he overlaid with fine gold. And he carved palm trees and chain work on it. And he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty. The gold was gold from Parveum. He also overlaid the house, the beams and doorposts, its walls and doors with gold, and he carved cherubim on the walls. And he made the most holy place. Its length was according to the width of the house, 20 cubits, and its width was 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. The weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold. So there's the $650 gold nail. Wow. And he overlaid the upper area with gold. And so uh, this is sort of like, again, I think we talked about it last week, Mary pouring out her perfume, which was a whole year's wages on, on, on Jesus' feet, his body, anointing his body. And they said, well, why are you wasting all this money? All this could have been used for the well, you know, we all are, that's so like us, we're always sort of just wanting to do what's required of us with the Lord and not go way, way above and beyond what the Lord has required. And so that's what's going on with these $650 nails. And so we know, we do know some other nails that were worth a lot more than $650. It was the nails that were driven into Jesus' hands and his feet. You talk about expensive nails. So those were the nails that um, actually he paid a much greater uh, uh, price for. He also went to hell and absorbed our sin. Verse 10, it says, In the most holy place he made two cherubim fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold. So cherubim, they were angels. Angels were not for worship, but they were part of worship. They were joining in worship. If you look in the book of Revelation, there are tens of thousands of angels worshiping God actually right now in heaven. They are very impressive things. Uh, as it says in Revelation 19, John was so impressed by an angel, he fell down and worshipped it. The angel said, get up. What are you doing worshipping me? I'm not God. Worship God. 
but angels do take part in worship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Remember, with the, that's the uh, chapter about women and head coverings. Also, I won't get into that now. You can get that CD. We went through that one. That's not an easy one. But it says there that uh, women should have head coverings because of the presence of angels in the worship service. So all what that means, I'm not sure. But it does say that they're a part of the worship service. They're with us now. They were sent uh, to minister to those who have salvation, it says in Hebrews. Angels are part of the worship. Now, on 11 through 13, it talks about the wings of the cherubim. In verse 14, about the veil. It says, he made the veil of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen and wove cherubim into it. So that's the veil that's between the most holy place and the holy place. And remember, that's what was uh, sort of split in two, although it was a later temple, when Jesus died, meaning the veil was taken away, and now we can go right into the presence of the Lord. It says, he said, uh, verse 15, and also he made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high, and the capital that was on the top of each of them was five cubits. He made wreaths of chain work, as in the inner sanctuary, and put them on top of the pillars. And he made 100 pomegranates and put them on wreaths of chain work. And then he set up the pillars before the temple, one, of the, one on the right hand of the, and the other and on the left. He called the name of the one on the right hand, Jachin, which means he shall establish, and the name of the other pillar was Boaz, which means in it is strength. And so there's these chains going from these uh, sort of of these pillars, and on top there's these pomegranates, and so some believe that the chains speak of just unity. You know, you chain something together, and you know, you do these human chain things, there's a sense of, uh, of unity there. And so, uh, the, just the unity uh, in the body of Christ and the pomegranates speak of fruitfulness. Remember, we spoke uh, quite a while back of the robes, the bottom of the robes, the high priests, there were bells, remember, on the bottom of the robes of, uh, of the high priests. And in between the bells, there was what? That's right, pomegranates. And the teaching on, on that was, you know, the bells represent the gift of the Holy Spirit. But if you don't have something in between the gifts of the Holy Spirit to sort of cushion it, They'll all be clanging up against one another. So the pomegranates are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it is true. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, man, you can have the most tremendous teaching gift or the prophetic gift or gift of miracles, but you can be the most carnal person on the face of this earth. The problem is when people have spiritual gifts like teaching, like sort of prophetical gifts and this kind of thing, they think... They're incredibly spiritual because they have the gift. But the gift has nothing to do with spirituality. Spiritual fruit 
has a lot to do with spirituality. But so that, so sort of the idea of the pomegranates, we need the fruit of the Spirit with the gift of the Holy Spirit, or else there's just going to be a lot of clanging going on. And you've heard bells when they knock up against each other, or maybe you haven't. Uh, it sounds really nasty. It stays with you for a couple days. Uh, it's one of those things kind of like scratching nails on a chalkboard. I bet some of you got shivers just by me doing that right now, right? I bet you did. But anyway, clanging bells is the, the same way. We need the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life if the gifts, if our spiritual gifts are going to be used at all. And I think of, of you musicians here in this room. I mean, as you well need to be in prayer about, you can be incredibly gifted. And you can get up here and, you know, sing like an angel or play the guitar or the keyboard like, uh, I don't know, do angels play the guitar? No, they don't do that in, in heaven. But no, that, actually, I'm sure there's guitars in heaven, whatever. But you can, you can just be incredibly gifted. But if it's not accompanied by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we're all in big trouble because of you. You guys be in prayer. You worship people. But all of you have spiritual gifts. The Bible says, we went through this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, each one is given a spiritual gift. It has to be accompanied by uh, the spiritual fruit. So again, these, these wonderful pillars representing strength, representing the, the strength in the body of Christ. One was called, he shall establish, and you know, and it is strength, and then, you know, you have these chains and the pomegranates and, you know, representing sort of the unity and the uh, fruit of the Holy Spirit, and uh, you know, we can have, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the most wonderful teaching and prophecy and knowledge, we can have all of it, but if we have don't have love, we are nothing, so supremely what... Uh, this uh, can speak to here at the end of chapter 3 is just supremely what's important about God's temple is that we, we as people, as individuals, that we love. Just in my devotion time this morning, 1 Corinthians sixteen fourteen, let all that you do be done with love. Romans 13, 8, 8 owe no one anything except to love one another. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. So anyway, so supremely, we as temples, temples of the Holy Spirit, that's what it's all about. The love, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the pomegranates. So let those pomegranates this week just be interspersed with the giftings that God has given you. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for uh, your word, and Father, that's the desire for our, for our lives, Lord, that we know that we owe no one, we'd be a debtor to no man except to love him, except to love her. And Lord, I just pray, Father, uh, thanking you just for the privilege of being burden bearers, prayer warriors, for the privilege of being quarry men and quarry women, women men who quarry the stone and, and are just a part of, of building up the temple. And Lord, how we long for your appearing, how we long for you and 
or the return of uh, your return where we can go to that place, Lord, where there will be no more chiseling, no more sounds of the hammer, just uh, that perfect uh, temple, Lord, where as living stones we, we will gather and, and worship you. God, that is our hope. That's our desire. That's our passion. Please give us the grace even as we wait upon that day, Lord God, to live faithfully in obedience, Lord, to the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for those of you who would like to pray with us, we are going to be returning to pray in about 15 minutes. I'd like to pray um, about a few things. One, we got a call from Glenda. Glenda and Jose are at the, uh, Glenda's son's wedding. Actually, the wedding was yesterday. So now Glenda's a mother-in-law. So you can call her a mother-in-law when she gets back. But anyway, uh, don't call her that. It's a good thing, though. I have the most wonderful mother-in-law. But anyway, she's a mother-in-law now. And, but anyway, she's a very sick mother-in-law. She's very sick. And Jose called would like some prayer for her, apparently. Well, I won't describe this sickness, but it needs prayer. Um, also, just for, I want to, I ask for everyone's prayer tonight and this week for my daughter, Adlai. She is in Peru at the mission center that my brother uh, built, a surgery center. And so uh, she's down there for the week. That just God would use her and touch her heart. And that there's a whole team of there sort of doing surgery, and they bring in Indians from the jungle into this jungle city, and and just that the Lord would minister, use them to minister to those people. Also tonight, we're going to be praying for Pastor Serge. It's a praise report because the ministry to the abandoned kids is continuing. But urgent prayer, they need a bigger facility due to a growing ministry. Always a wonderful, wonderful thing to pray about, a wonderful problem to have. And also just for wisdom because there are many, many uh, ministries down there and they need just wisdom of what to focus on. Okay, God bless you. You are dismissed.